Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The first 100 days of any new presidential administration offers a key inflection point, signaling the policies that the new administration will prioritize and champion. It is during those first 100 days that the new administration gets the most leeway from Congress, the media, and the general public to set their agenda. Setting that agenda often includes a mix of new executive actions, supporting specific pieces of legislation, and releasing a federal budget request to Congress, which demonstrates the new administration's funding priorities. This is the opportunity for the Biden administration when it takes office on January 20th. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into what a Biden administration's first 100-day agenda may look like when it comes to resetting America's relationship with the United Nations and other multilateral organizations. Peter Yeo is the president of the Better World Campaign and senior vice president of the United Nations Foundation. He has had a long career in Congress, the federal government, and advocacy, and he explains the various executive actions and legislative priorities that the Biden administration will likely pursue to signal the United States' renewed commitment to multilateralism. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And I'll post the link in the show notes of the episode. All right, now here is my conversation with Peter Yeo, president of the Better World Campaign and senior vice president of the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When the president issues an executive order, it really gives him the ability to get stuff done without congressional approval. There are parameters around what can be in an executive order and what's a bridge too far in terms of an executive order. But the concept behind an executive order is steps that can be taken unilaterally by the president of the United States related to, among other things, America's role in the world that really can have an impact and can have in many cases, an immediate impact. Presumably, the Biden transition team is preparing a number of executive orders that Biden could sign 
on day one. And we know from media reports what some of them might be, like, say, returning to the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, What do you expect to see from Biden on day one? Well, as we think about the day one agenda uh, in terms of America's relationship with the UN or multilaterally more generally, there's a bunch of items. Number one is uh, withdrawing the letter uh, that was presented by the Trump administration to the secretary general that uh, withdrew the U.S. from the World Health Organization. So if the if President uh, Biden on day one withdraws this letter, then the U.S. will once again be of, uh, you know, will continue to be a full member of the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but that letter said something like on X day after this letter, we will withdraw from the WHO. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the uh, all the United States needed to give a one year notice to the World Health Organization that it was withdrawing. Mm. And um, we're still within that one year window. So if President Biden on day one basically revokes that letter, then the U.S. membership in WHO remains intact. Um, and now there's a agenda that needs to happen there in terms of paying our dues to WHO and participating in COVAX, which is the um, sort of WHO-led initiative to support the deployment of a COVID vaccine to countries around the world in partnership with the developed world. Um, but in any event, I mean, that's a day one action is mm-hmm. basically say to the WHO, don't worry, we're not withdrawing, we're still a member. And that's a day one action. I think another day one action is Paris Climate Accord. Um, we will have missed the deadline, unfortunately, to um, withdraw, uh, to sort of stop the clock on Paris. Um, uh, but the U.S. can signal that it is rejoining Paris. Um, and uh, the announcement that uh, former Secretary of State, former Senator John Kerry, will be leading our global efforts on climate change is, boy, what a welcome development that is. And so as we think about um, rejoining Paris, as we think about going to uh, Glasgow, which is the next uh, meeting, uh, of the conference of parties to figure out next steps on Paris implementation. John Kerry is going to be there and the U.S. will be at the table. Uh, and so that's a, an exciting element. We're already seeing this. I mean, we didn't need to wait to day one because John Kerry's appointment has already been announced. So we have WHO, we have Paris, um, and with the UN Population Fund, that's a day one action that needs mm-hmm. to occur. Will you explain what that is? Because that is uh, you, restoring U.S. funding to the UN Population Fund is probably a less known on day one item than World Health Organization reentry and Paris Climate Accord. Can you just, uh, explain a little bit of the background there? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, this has been a unfortunately a political football between Democratic and Republican administrations in the United States, which democratic administrations fund our contributions to the UN population fund and Republicans um, generally remove all funding uh, from the population fund, largely on specious and erroneous arguments about UNFPA's role in China. 
particularly China's previous one-child policy, which it no longer has and does not implement. Um, but in any event, so any as we think about the day one, the UNFPA does amazing work around the world. I've seen it, um, visited uh, important UNFPA projects in Jordan. So, you know, UNFPA does family planning, does well, the full range of, um, you know, sexual reproductive health services, uh, although it does not um, uh, perform abortions, uh, fund abortions, um, which is what the Republicans say, but it's in- incorrect. Um, and it does amazing work uh, in terms of empowering women and girls around the world. So um, anyways, it's exciting to see that on day mm-hmm. one, the Biden administration will be refunding um, the UN Population Fund. So, so those are three specific executive actions that we can expect on the very first day of the Biden administration. And they, they've signaled as much already. Um, looking forward, you know, the first 100 days is always a key inflection point for a new administration. Uh, I want to ask you sort of two baskets of questions. The first is, you know, what more further executive actions would you expect the administration to take in that first 100 days in terms of resetting or reengaging U.S. approach to the U.N. and other uh, multilateral, other aspects of multilateral cooperation? Uh, and then what actions require U.S. Congress uh, and cooperation between the administration and Congress. So first on that um, executive action basket of questions, what would you expect in the first 100 days to be accomplished? Yeah, a couple of things, which is, first of all, uh, the U.S. is currently not a member of the U.N. Human Rights Council. Uh, We withdrew our membership during the Trump administration. And so 2021 in the first 100 days would be an important moment for the U.S. to signal uh, that it wishes to run for the Human Rights Council again. The elections will be held at the end of 2021 for a, for a three-year term beginning in January of 2022. So, But there's a lot of work that's going to need to get done in that first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration to prepare for a U.S. run for the Human Rights Council. Because I should say this could potentially be a competitive election in which the U.S. would run against other countries in Western Europe. It should be, um, it should be a competitive election. Mm-hmm. You know, best practice is that countries should have to make the case for why they should be a member of the Human Rights Council. And so the U.S. needs to run. We need to make the case as to why we believe that we'll be a responsible member of the Human Rights Council. Um, and, uh, so I think there's a lot of work that needs to get done on that front. Uh, as you said, it's a competitive election. I think the other element is, um, we need to figure out how much the U.S. owes the U.N. and in what buckets. There's sort of a forensic accounting that needs to happen in the first hundred days because we think that the U.S. owes at least a billion dollars in overdue bills to the United Nations. And frankly, um, you know, as we think about the first 100 days, we need to work closely with our partners at the UN um, and the State Department needs to work with them to figure out, you know, what do we owe for the peacekeeping? What do we owe for the UN regular budget? What do we owe to other UN funds, programs and agencies? And then in- include all of that in 
the president's budget request. And that's where Congress comes in because Congress, of course, needs to appropriate the money mm-hmm. to pay our overdue bills, to pay our ongoing bills. So that's an area of partnership. Can I stop you there and probe a bit deeper? Because I know you follow this issue very closely. What do you suspect are the big outstanding bills that the United States owes to the UN right now? And how is the fact that you know the US the UN is owed so much money impacting UN operations, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we know that we owe at least a billion dollars for peacekeeping because we have been for the past four years, we have been paying roughly 25% of the peacekeeping bills that the UN incurs, uh, but we're supposed to be paying at the moment 27.8. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up to roughly $250 million each year in unpaid bills. Just as an important reminder, <laughs> there's not a peacekeeping mission that is created, changed, or ended without explicit U.S. approval because of our veto on the Security Council. So the U.S. is voting for all these peacekeeping missions. We're just not paying the bills. And that's having an impact. It's delaying all of the countries that contribute the troops to peacekeeping. Are They're getting paid um, uh, incredibly late. A lot of our co- the U.N. contractors that contribute to, you know, um, you know, the plane, the fuel for the planes, yeah, that type of stuff, they're being paid late. So it's encouraging the worst budget practices um, as a result of us paying late. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen like an increasingly dire tone from statements from Antonio Guterres uh, about their cash flow and liquidity crisis. Every you know couple months, it seems I, I I'm see like a new press release or a new statement about how cash strapped and cash poor the UN is at the moment because of many of these outstanding bills. Yeah, and it's not just you know in that case, it's not just UN peacekeeping; it's the UN regular budget. The fact is, the UN owes the US owes money for the UN regular budget. And the regular budget, of course, supports what's happening in New York uh, and supports the broader range of UN operations on the peace and security front. Uh, and so, you know, it's a real challenge that the US owes money to the UN regular budget and is paying, what it, what it is paying is coming very late and it's causing severe liquidity issues. So I'm glad we're getting a little bit into the weeds here of how the U.S. funds the U.N. because, you know, it, it turns out that the guiding legislation uh, for U.S. funding for the U.N. contains the name of the president-elect of the United States, the Helms-Biden law, uh, which was passed, what, in like the late 90s? Indeed. Um Yeah. So so can you explain what that law is? Because it is now, of course, seemingly very relevant. Yeah. Um, so one of my jobs at the State Department was to serve on the State Department negotiating team that negotiated the Helms-Biden package in the uh, late 1990s, um, in which uh, now the president-elect, then Senator Biden, played an essential role. And basically, it linked a billion dollars in overdue bills to the U.N. It's amazing how we tend to operate in billion-dollar increments. Um to a series of 40-plus reforms, most of which have been implemented. Um, and um, and But as part of the Helms-Biden package, it contained a, uh, a cap, a 25% cap on the U.S. share for peacekeeping. 
Now, um, Congress has frequently waived that cap, but for the last four years, it hasn't. And that's what's caused the arrears. So we need a real um, discussion with Congress on the importance of the U.S. paying its dues in full. But the the core essence of Helms-Biden uh, was about reform and change. And that needs to be part of the, uh, and I'm certain will be part of the Biden-Harris approach towards our engagement with the UN and the UN system. You know, as we think about development reforms, management reforms, peace and security reforms, all of which are part of the Secretary General's reform agenda, the U.S. really needs to play uh, a role in supporting reform and really working to develop coalitions of like-minded countries um, that are committed to change, are committed to cost-effectiveness, are co- are, and are really committed to performance measurement to make sure that the investments that we're all making in the U.N. system actually, um, uh, it's money well spent, and it's actually having the impact that we want in terms of our partnership with countries around the world. That was at the, at the heart of Helms-Biden, uh, and, um, and, and will remain at the heart, I imagine, uh, of our approach to the UN today. I mean, do you see the prospect of a new kind of guiding legislation a la Helms-Biden to uh, guide U.S. Uh, relationship with the United Nations in the coming years? I don't think it's needed. I think what, what what's needed is we need to pay our dues to the United Nations, both current bills and existing bills. But the U.S. already has a seat at the table in any discussion about management and reforms, um, any ref- any change in the way that the U.N. does business. And so if we pay our dues in full and pay our arrears, our ability to actually work with other countries toward change will increase. If we actually link it to money that we already owe, or, you know, that, mm. that in, in, um, reduces our, our, our credibility. And so I, I, I feel like, um, if we pay our dues, we already have a seat at the table. Uh, so we're speaking at a time where we know that, uh, you know, Biden will be president, that the Democrats will control the House of Representatives, though the Senate control of the Senate is somewhat up in the air. We're awaiting these two runoff uh, elections in Georgia in early January. Uh, you know, does the congressional agenda you just outlined hinge on one way or another on the outcome of, of those elections in January? Well, I think that the um, outcome of the Georgia elections would certainly have make it easier to um, uh, get full funding for the UN um, um, moving forward. But um, it's not essential, right, in the sense that any type of appropriations bill that Congress works on is a negotiation. And so uh, Lindsey Graham who is the current chairman and will continue to be the chairman of the state foreign ops subcommittee has been often a very positive partner on um, all things UN uh, and has a very open door on these issues. So while uh, the outcome of the Georgia races um, will be, have an impact, I wouldn't say it's a sole determinative factor. 
I think the other element to consider here is that we have a top-notch ambassador uh, designate uh, for the UN uh, in uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. And her ability, she's well-known on Capitol Hill. She's very popular on Capitol Hill in Republican and Democratic offices. And she's going to have a real ability to deliver, uh, to, to have substantive conversations about uh, you know, the full range of issues in the U.S.-U.N. relationship, including funding. Um, and so that's uh, the Biden-Harris administration, frankly, is already starting ahead uh, with such a thoughtful and strategic choice in terms of uh, our ambassador to the U.N. Uh, and, and what about uh, the choice of uh, Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, as Secretary of State? What does that suggest to you about Biden's approach to multilateral engagement and what that first 100-day agenda might look like? Well, um, you know, uh, of course, um, Secretary-designate Tony Blinken um, has been uh, Biden's chief foreign policy guy for many, many years. Um, I worked with him when I... Uh, worked on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he was staff director in the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, and uh, I think what it signals is a, a commitment to multilateralism. Um, Tony understands the power of the UN. Uh, he was Deputy Secretary of State um, and um, worked extensively with the UN on a wide variety of issues, including refugees uh, and refugee policy. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, multilateralism is the only way to get stuff just done. It means that uh, multilateralism will once again be a core element of the U.S. diplomatic toolbox, along with our bilateral approaches to other countries, along with foreign assistance. Um, but multilateralism is back, and Tony uh, um, very much appreciates the role that not just the U.N. and New York plays, but that all of the U.N. agencies like the U.N. Refugee Agency, the Human Rights Council, U.N. Population Fund, Tony instinctively understands um, from his years of service uh, to the president-elect why these investments we, we make, the U.S. makes, actually matter to American interests. And I'm glad we spent a bit of time talking about Congress because it's just to me interesting to note that someone who really cut their teeth in like the weeds and trenches of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as a staffer is now the Secretary of State designate. I mean, that, that signals to me, you'll have someone just who has kind of deep understanding of the legislative process and of all the processes that you just described that would um, help reset U.S. relationship with the United Nations. Well, you know, you can't – well, two things. You can't reset America's relationship with the UN, and you can't rebuild the State Department and America's diplomatic platform without the active support of Congress. We need a partnership with Congress on all of this. And we have many strong supporters of, uh, of both issues in Congress on the Republican and Democratic aisle. Tony Blinken and Linda Thomas-Greenfield are uniquely positioned because of their – close ties and experience on Capitol Hill uh, to play an essential role in rebuilding this relationship uh, and rebuilding these ties. And uh, so these are wise moves. And, and in Tony's case, it's certainly the case of a congressional staffer doing good. Uh, he's had a brilliant career since he left the Hill, serving with uh, the vice president 
then serving as Deputy Secretary of State, the number two position at the State Department. So um, uh, the Biden-Harris administration is really lucky to get him. Uh, finally, are there any other action items or executive actions that you would expect or foresee the Biden administration to take on either in the first 100 days or perhaps shortly thereafter? You know, I think that there's a lot of discussion about uh, our re-engagement um, and refunding of UNRWA. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, that that's the uh, UN uh, humanitarian agency that supports Palestinian refugees. Correct. And uh, so under the Trump administration, all funding to UNRWA was ended. Uh, they are now experiencing a financial crisis as a result of this. So my guess is that will be a front burner issue uh, to uh, figure out how to reengage with UNRWA. Um, I think UNESCO is also out there as an issue for consideration. The U.S. under the Trump administration withdrew from UNESCO, um, which is UNESCO is the uh, UN's educational and cultural and scientific organization. So I'm sure there will be an act of debate again involving Congress as to whether the U.S. Uh, should consider membership in UNESCO. Super complicated issue will require congressional approval. Um, and so, but this will certainly be, uh, I imagine, on the agenda for consideration. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. And as always, nice to speak to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peter Yo. That was very helpful. Uh, Peter is someone I've known for a very long time, and he's someone who I've always come to rely on to help me better understand the intricacies of the important relationship between the United States and the United Nations. Again, check out getusback.org to access other episodes in this series, which are forthcoming. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.